Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, your host, Andy Runtmore. My guest this week is my good friend and Froomtown Council colleague, Nick Dove. But we're not here to talk about politics or the town council today. We're here to talk about his 30 years in law enforcement, starting in the late 80s in the Metropolitan Police. We talk about moving to the drug squad. We talk about the flying squad, which is known as the Sweeney, named after the iconic UK, uh, I think it was a 70s TV show. Um, anti-corruption squads, we talk about bugging houses and things that can go wrong, we talk about armed robberies, we talk about um, drug bust raids that can go wrong, um, we talk about fighting men with machetes uh, and how adrenaline can easily take over and cloud judgment in a professional capacity. Um, did I mention hostage negotiation? No, I didn't, but that's in there as well. <laughs> There's so much to talk about in this podcast that I almost don't want to say any more, really, because I don't want to spoil anything. But it's just jam-packed, full of um, full of success, full of fun, full of um, ambition and drive uh, and being proactive. Uh, and uh, I think integrity as well. That's a big thing. The big theme throughout Nick's policing career is maintaining integrity. Uh, I think that's really important to mention. Trigger warning, content warning. We do talk about suicide and domestic abuse. So if you are sensitive to that um, and would rather pass on this, then um, there we have the warnings for you. Um, Beyond that, really good pod. Really, really enjoyed it. I'm going to stop waffling on now and just let you guys get on with it. Really, really good one. Here it is, Nick Dove. Enjoy. This sounds like a, a pretty. Um, I guess you know with the jobs that the police do, you 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 kind of get a bit numb to some things, don't you? And a gallows humour comes out. Yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah. And I and I guess um, it's not for the faint of heart, is it? You got to have pretty thick skin. Yeah, I, I think it's. I mean, it, it's an it's an amazing job, and, and it's some extraordinary people, and and some of the experiences that people have, and, and I was lucky enough to be part of them. They're extraordinary and sometimes life-affirming, sometimes hugely distressing and moving. And, and but, but in terms of how, how you react to that, it's different. And, and you know, it, the culture is extremely strong. You know, you are, you, you've really, you've got to be very strong and fiercely independent if you don't kind of go with the herd mentality. You know, you arrive at a police station and you are, everyone, st- everyone used to start in exactly the same way. You all started as a uniform constable you know, helmet, wooden truncheon in my day, kind of really basic, and you get posted to what they call a, a relief, a team, and you do mm. earlys, lates, and nights with that team, and that's your whole kind of life. You work with them, and, you know, if you call for help, they'll come and help you, if you all those kind of things, and you want to fit in, you know. It's that desperate to be, not to be the most junior person, to be accepted, and that's really strong. And, of course, if you join a team that got bad habits and misbehave, and um, that becomes really challenging and really difficult, and um, I was lucky, I... I came in with a degree of maturity and an ambition to become a detective. So I wasn't on that What track. year is this? 1982. 82. So yeah. you still got the wooden truncheons, yeah. truncheons at that point? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. What, what, does the, what does the gear... So you, you show up, you got your first day of work as a, uh, as a constable mm. in 1982 yeah. in the Met, yeah. and they hand you your uniform. What right. does yeah. that look like? Okay, you have the helmet, the old-fashioned helmet. Yeah, the big tall one. 
Yeah, leather inside, hard top, metal top, leather strap that's supposed to go underneath your chin, hold it in place, because it never does. Um, a heavy blue serge uniform with buttons, a whistle, a wooden truncheon that slides into a side pocket of your, uh, your right-hand side of your trousers, and you get three accident report books, three incident report books, and a police notebook, which you're supposed to write everything significant in. It all goes, right. in, all goes in a leather case... Like a sort of like a big wallet, which goes into your left hand trouser pocket. Uh, belt, heavy trousers, heavy you know, that surge. It gets wet and it's a nightmare. You know, it just it just right. drags and um, heavy black boots. That's it. Face the world. It's, it, it, it crazy now. If you look at a police officer now, they've mm. got body cams, stab proof vests. Mm. They've got um, uh, uh, it's not called a trunch anymore. It's called some sort of like baton. A, a what? Asp. An asp. Asp or a bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the one that you, you sort of flick out and yeah. it comes out and sort of... Uh, you've got taser gun, uh, taser gun, uh, it's probably not the... Pepper spray. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Probably still got a notepad. Now, what? D- tell me, is there any truth in this that I've heard that your notebook, mm. your notepad and pen will save your life more times than your your truncheon? <laughs> because, because when you're starting to write someone's name down... Uh, they, um, you know, it's powerful. I, I, th- I think, you know, I was thinking about this um, podcast when I was, uh, today earlier on when I was out, and, um, you know, I was thinking about the changes. And when I started out, most people respected and believed the police. Right. You know, and, and you know, unfortunately, my generation and probably the generation before and subsequently have spoiled that. But, but the change in technology, now that everyone has got basically a camera in their pocket, yeah. Everyone is accountable. There's a great, it, it, and, and the, the speed that which news travels and, and word travels makes it enormous. You know, there was a t- you know, I could stop somebody with my pathetic kind of wooden truck to never even get it out, and they would see and and mostly, mostly right. If I stopped them, they would stop and they would listen and they would do what they were told. They yeah. wouldn't, there wouldn't be this pushback, and you know. Some of that is wrong that they should push back, but they, there are, you know, lots of horrible, horrible stories. And I've, you know, seen them, I've investigated some of them, um, where people have behaved in a way in the past, police have behaved in a way that will tarnish their reputation and their, um, how they're perceived by that family and their friends forever. You can't get that back. Right. You know, if you've, if you've acted unlawfully, if you've used your authority to arrest somebody unlawfully, to fit them up in a sort of parlance, then how would you ever trust those people again? And then, right. Yeah. So, so that side. So it's changed. So my, yeah, the, the notebook was only powerful in terms of that's where you wrote your evidence down. But it, you know, I mean, I'd say no. I mean, the most powerful thing is your ability to speak to people. How do you? Communicate? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's just I heard that you know, as soon as that notebook comes out, people know they're on the rack then a little bit, and they you know they're under scrutiny, and it's you know you better. <laughs> Better be maybe that's an old school thing. I think maybe a bit really old school. I think thing. a bit now. Everyone would be hitting whatever this voice memo or something now, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> very different. Yeah. Well, have you heard some of the latest news? I know the states and uh, and the the English police is a very there's a very big divide between um, the two police forces and how they operate. But um, have you seen that recently when police officers have been stopping people in the states? They've been playing music by the Beatles or, or whoever, because um, when this person is filming them on Facebook Live or Instagram Live, the algorithms in these social media platforms pick up that copyrighted music is being playing and they shut down the audio. 
wow. for the for the video. So police are cottoning on in in the states where people, they're stopping people and talking to people and they're filming them everyone wants to do that these days don't they as soon as you're stopped by the yeah. police officer yeah. that you, you no i'm gonna film you you're gonna film me mm-hmm. and you know i guess that there's this mutually assured destruction if anyone puts a foot out of step mm-hmm. i guess that's the the uh the the vibe there but what the the some reports are that police are starting to play music um so that these the audio of these things get shut down which seems kind of tyrannical uh in a way um it's, it's to me, you know, just behave as you should behave. You know, it's a huge yeah. responsibility. It's a huge honour to carry. You know, in the UK, the you know the warrant card, the you know the sort of Queen's warrant as such, and you should behave accordingly. And to start finding ways to basically disguise and hide what you're doing. Why are you doing that? You're either behaving, you're either acting how you should, or you're not. Yeah, what you're hiding. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan yeah, well, of body, body-worn cameras. Why, you know, I would, if they, they weren't around, but well, they were around, but not in the squads I work. But I, I, if I was a uniform officer now, I'd be very keen to wear them because it's, it's, yeah. it's my, it's my defence, my security, and it would a make sure I remember and focus, but it also gives me that kind of understanding that you know, if I'm dealing with someone and they make allegations about how I've trouble, I said, well, no, let's let's watch this, let's play it back and see. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I like that idea that, that, you know, you know it's on so mm. that you know you're bringing your A game as well. Mm. Interesting. So you've been issued your, um, what seems like a very sort of antique, uh, sorry, Nick, yeah, no, um, <laughs> um, police uh, uniform and equipment, and you head out onto the streets. What's, what's your first sort of week like as a police officer? Is it quite shocking? Is it... It was, I mean, basically, that you start off, you're a probationer, and so you basically got to do a number of things, and they would send you out with a more experienced police officer, and the one I went out with said, right, you're going to learn every street in this on your manor, you know, and your way you're policing. So yeah. I'll say to you any time, like three in the morning, what street win? And you've got to tell me. The idea being when you end up having a kind of run to go and support someone, help someone, you'll know exactly where you are and you can respond. And our radio, yeah. our radios in those days had a range of about 300 metres. <laughs> it was just ridiculous, you know, and that was just back to the base. They, they weren't sort of person to person. And genuinely, you would quite often get your whistle out and blow this bloody whistle. And, I'm, I'm, you know, I know time goes quickly, but it's not that long ago, so the change is huge. <laughs> so you'd learn, you'd learn the street, they'd learn the streets, and then you'd learn who the local villains were. And you go looking for them because, right. because as a probationer, you had to have your figures for arrests, stops and processing. So vehicle um, crimes and stopping motorists. So you were working to, uh, to like a quote owner way yeah, then? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and that, that's one of the things that is kind of often unseen and unappreciated. And it's bad in some ways because, of course, you're forced, if, if you're ambitious as I was, I wanted to be a detective. To be a detective, you had to be what was called a good thief taker. Right. So you had to have your numbers. You had to, they said, how many people you arrested this week? And of course, if you're struggling and you haven't been, you know, fortunate in the right place at the right time and so on, unscrupulous colleagues would go looking for people who they knew were maybe bad and, yeah. ar- and arrest them for something that maybe they hadn't done. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was going to ask you about that because it would, you would if you were a very ambitious young police officer and you knew say you wanted to be a detective but you knew you had to make x amount of inquiries arrests stops mm. whatever it would be easy with no body cams with 
radios that only go 300 meters, whatever, to, yeah, to do that. And do you think there's there's any truth in that, you know, the, the role of police officer can appeal to very wrong... Yeah. to the very wrong sort of people because there is power, isn't there? And yeah. it is... Yeah, I, I believe that... Um, I don't want to say all police officers are psychopaths or anything like that, mm. but I'm sure it, I'm sure that kind of job does appeal yeah. to very it, low empathy people. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. I mean, if you, if you look at... Yeah, my ambition was to become a detective on the Flying Squad. To, to get there... Bear in mind, there are 120 detectives on the flying squad in London and, and 40,000 cops. So to get there, it was a fairly competitive process. Not everyone wanted to go down that route, of course. And so to get yeah. there, you had to, I had to get out of uniform. So I had to, first of all, prove to the CID in my local station that I was a good thief taker. I knew what I was doing. I had to be selected to join a plainclothes unit. And then I'd start investigating minor crimes. And if I was good at that, I'd then get onto a crime squad where you go out in, you know, sort of plain clothes, jeans and T-shirt and go and find crime being committed. You couldn't respond to calls for help. You had to go and find crime and arrest people. And at the end of each month, the DS would call us all into the office and say, right, you've had six arrests, you've had the... And you walk through it. And there would then be selection boards for the detective coming up. And so, so the process was, was, was tough. And you would work long, long... You know, I'd quite often stay on and do a a double shift for no overtime because I'd arrest anybody in the first eight hours. And I'd come in right. early and I'd go and speak to the collator who was the intelligence cell on the station and say, what's going on? What do you know? What crimes have happened overnight? Where do they happen? Because um, I was just so keen to get there. So there was that side and I'd kind of... so and, and, you know, it was, I think, probably about 10 or 15% of us got through to the detective. Of course, the rest just stayed trying to get there. And, of course... People get desperate and they go out and they'd arrest people. Some kind of extreme sort of elements that I dealt with later on when I was um, a detective where the sort of more sort of corruption end when cops became bad. But at the lower level, that you get the people who, who had that ambition so they would fit people up or they would add, you know, it's called gilding the lily, all these kind of expressions, noble cause so, corruption, that kind of stuff, all this kind so of... So what do these things mean? They, they just mean sort of framing someone yeah. or, or putting someone in a position to slip up and then be ready to arrest them? I mean, if, if you know, for example, if you know that Fred Bloggs is a prolific car thief or, yeah. or in, in, you know, in the early 80s, one of the main sort of low-level crimes is breaking into people's cars, ripping out the stereos. If you, know, yeah. if you know that person's doing it and you know because other criminals have told you, if you know because he's been seen in the vicinity but nobody caught him, all those kind of things... And, yeah. and you, you're out at night and he's out there and he's got a hammer in his pocket or a, and you think, right, it would be a lot easier for me to arrest him and say I'd seen him try and smash that window rather than just say you shouldn't be out here with a hammer in the early hours of the morning. Right. So you've then got so a prisoner. You, so you can get into uh, a strange situation there because morally you say so morally you've sort of bent the rules a little bit and told a white lie and you could go to bed presumably and sleep sleep soundly knowing that actually what you did was yeah okay it was kind of wrong but he had a hammer in his pocket at three in the morning so he couldn't have been up to anything too uh too helpful so how how do people you know because it's it isn't black and white is it no it's not black and white no it's not and i know circumstances where um People have been in that situation where they've been yeah. stopped by the police in suspicious circumstances. The police said, right, I'm arresting you. I'm going to say that I saw you try those door handles on those cars. And six, yeah. six months later at the magistrate's court, that, that individual gets up and pleads guilty. 
says, yeah, I, wow. did. I did it. Because actually you get a lesser sentence and he knows he's, you know, for the hundred he's done, he's only been caught for five or something like that. So, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a kind of grey area. But of course, the black and white of it is they were wrong. They lied. Yeah. So, yeah. They were dishonest. Yeah. So when you talk about local villains and things like that on your patch mm. and in your area, mm. I know there's an awful lot of policing career to uh, to get through. So I try not to spend too much time on, on the... Um, on the regular street beat stuff. Is there ever a point where, you know, you've you've dealt with these people so much, it, it, it is a bit like a game, I guess, mm. in some regards, isn't it? Like, yeah. oh, I know you, I'm going to catch you out. Yeah. And is, did you ever get to a point where some people where you were like, you know, I kind of weirdly respect you because you try your best, yeah. but you're a villain at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, what little success I maybe had in policing was because I, I kind of recognise, I, I like people and I, again, being older, a lot of my sort of peers, um, you kind of develop an empathy and you see most criminals, most people you deal with, right, they say most people you deal with as a police officer aren't really criminals. They're people who have got issues and they end up getting into trouble and, you know, the first point of call is nearly always the cops. Um so you have the kind of whole group, we've got, you know, sort of drug problems, alcohol problems, um, mental health issues who, you know, end up getting into scuffles, into trouble and so on. Um, but I kind of quite often, you know, and, and to become successful as a detective, you need to be able to get criminals to talk to you because you, A, you want admissions and convictions or B, most importantly, in many ways, you want information from them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, 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 I ran informants for 20 years and they were all people who I'd arrested initially and who, right. I'd, who I'd developed a relationship with to the point where they trusted me enough to start giving me information. Sometimes just because they wanted revenge on somebody, sometimes usually because they wanted money, sometimes they wanted to reduce sentence, but it was about building a relationship with them. Um, and I had huge respect. I had one informant who I ran for 10 years and his courage, his bravery was just extraordinary. You know, he, he, was, right. he was passing me information about really serious criminals and had they found out they'd have killed him and he and he i remember him i used to socialize with him officially i'm going to spend time with him so that, and he said i can't tell anyone else in the world what i do i can't tell my family because they'd be ashamed i can't tell certainly my criminal associates they'd kill me he says the only person i can talk to is so i spent a lot of time with him and, and other people and i kind of understand you know that you know those choices sometimes people make there are obviously some really horrible people involved in crime that that you know that do despicable crimes, you know, particularly, you know, violence towards their partners, those kind of things that, that have been very um, influential in how I've acted, how I've worked in, in my policing career. But you know, the general kind of criminal involved in sort of crimes that are acquisitive of nature, those kind of things, I kind of find quite easier to sit and listen to and talk to and bond with them almost and develop a relationship with them, albeit you've always got to have borders. Right. So when you say running an informant, what you mean is having an ongoing professional relationship with yeah. them, where they understand that what they're so they understand they're giving you information, and it's it's a two way street, right? Yeah, it's, they they're generally they are they are good informants will be good criminals, they'll be successful criminals who have a network of people that they are trusted by, so they know what's happening in their community or in their sort of sphere. Um, and you usually, as a detective, come into contact with them because. Usually they've been arrested. Sometimes they've been um, the victim of something or you get to meet them or whatever. Um, and as I said, their motivation is, is usually financial. They want a reward for doing it. They want to get revenge on someone. 
or they want to get a reduction in whatever sentence they've got coming towards them. It's an, it's an area where lots of people, lots of my friends in the past have got into a lot of trouble. It's, you, it's a really, really fraught area. You've got to be really, really careful how you manage it. But, it, you know, you've got to manage it professionally. You've always got to keep a bit of a distance. You've always got to document all the kind of processes. You can't make promises. You can't keep, you can't encourage them to commit crimes that wouldn't otherwise be committed. There's a, there's a kind of, you can't get them to go out and say to somebody they know is involved in drugs, I want to buy a kilo of Coke, can you go and get it for me? And then come and tell me as a cop and I go and arrest them for the kilo of Coke. You know, they, yeah. they, they've got to act. The crime has already got to be what's called laid on or happening. Right. So, but it's, it's a very, it's, a, it's an area that's hugely productive if you run it well, but can get you into huge trouble because the informant can end up running you as a cop. Oh, right. So they switch the game up on you and they say to their guys, hey, now this guy thinks I'm in, I'm ratting on you mm. and I'm not, but he's, uh, he's onto you, um, uh, Mickey, uh, Mickey Four Fingers. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know he's yeah. he, he's he's sniffing around your operation, and they go, "Well, thanks very much." And they, you know, they go underground for a while, and then yeah, that's that's one way. And, and another way is when um, you know a good informant knows that you, as a detective, your a lot of your success will be related to the information they give you. Um, yeah. and, and later on in my career, I worked on the anti-corruption squad, and what would happen is you, so you're on, say, the flying squad. To be successful, you need to know when bank, when bank robberies are going to take place. So an informant will say, this, this is going to take place. And they will then start saying, but you'll need to give me some of the proceeds. You need to let me keep some of the proceeds or I'll give you some of the proceeds. And, and because you're desperate to keep a good informant, yeah. they, they end up running you and your squad almost. That is interesting because it's all, you know, it's in their best interest sometimes, like, like you've said, to be an informant because you might be able to give them, you know, if they get caught down the line, they might be able to say, hey, look, I'm an asset to you, um, a reduced sentence or, or, or whatever sort of mm. bargaining chip that, that they can throw at you. But also, it's almost not in their best interest to see their entire criminal network locked up sometimes, is it? Because that would be shooting themselves in the foot, especially if they don't have any legit means of income although maybe in some cases um it it works in their favor to see a few certain characters go away because then they can uh fill that vacuum yeah. particularly in the drugs field you know the drugs was a classic one you'd, you'd arrest somebody i'd go on i was on the drug squad in the uh 90s mid 90s central on a drug squad and you'd arrest someone with say a couple of ounces of coke and i say okay you're in deep trouble now but that trouble could be a bit less if you tell me who's who supplied you with that so you'd work up the chain Right, and a, and a good informant would find ways to inform on his or her rivals in the area, so they'd be taken out by the police, and he'd suddenly get all their client list. Right, and then but then where are you left? Because he knows then that you know his operation, his or her operation, and that you're going to come for them if they suddenly have a monopoly on the on the on the coke. Um, trade of that area because you've taken out their um their closest rival surely they know their days are numbered anyway don't they? no because you just spread you spread wider you know with drugs it's always about going up the chain right so okay. you, you then go for the importers you go over to the caribbean and pick out the team from there you take out a shipload coming in from Colombia, and they'd be left with this sort of really lucrative end which is the street end where they're running the street dealers right that's fascinating so you've done your street uh your street work and what's next after that? You finally become a detective, I assume. Yeah, go to detective training school. I get posted to an inner city station, first posting as a detective constable, a place called Harrow Road in Kilburn. Um, funny place. It was, again, this was um, 1987, 88. And um, 
It was an office, very old-fashioned CID office. Frankly, most of the office were drunks, absolutely. By lunchtime, they were saying, right, we're going out on the manor. Let's go and hit these pubs. He wouldn't pay for a drink. It was awful. And I, I think, I, for, you know, for your new boy, first time DCI comes out and says, come with me, we go out. And, you know, sort of eight hours later, I can't stand up, you know, kind of, I'm full of it. Just... So in future, I would make sure about 11.30 when I knew he'd come looking for something, I'd just go and hide somewhere else in the station and do something else. So he'd pick on someone else and I could then focus on the work. Um, but it was, it was a great, I was a brilliant, I loved it there. It was a really great, I made some fantastic friends who are still friends of mine today, you know, all, those, all these years later. Great place to work. Um, I learned a lot. You have that kind of rather daunting thing when you're the only detective on night duty and the uniformer officers are out misbehaving, beating up people, bringing them in. You have to go downstairs and they say, right, what are we going to do here? You know, you've got to sort of find a way to deal with the mess they've created. It was a tough area. I mean, I, I would go and arrest somebody with my detective colleagues for something and they say, oh, please don't take us in our road. We always get beaten up when we go in there. So you, that's immediately, okay, we'll take you to Notting Hill. It'll be safer. But, you know, what are you going to tell us? What's going on? Is that kind of way you, you understand the situation? Nobody wants to get beaten up for nothing. It's, it's unnecessary and brutal. So are you saying that in this area of, of policing in 1988, there was a lot of police brutality? Did you say that there's a... In, in, that, in that area, it was, very, it was pretty tough. There was a lot of um, street, crime, street crime, street robberies. We're talking about um, before the Broadwater Farm riots, but after the Brixton riots, a lot of kind of tensions amongst races, a lot of obvious racism, but not yet been exposed and acted on. You know, where, where I was working, I was on the, running the little robbery squad team there, and we'd have probably eight or nine robberies a day in our small part of London, and all the offenders were, all the suspects were black. Most of the victims were either white or Asian. It was quite a funny area, so sort of Maida Vale is a sort of affluent part, and it moves into Kilburn and Kensal Rise and Wilsdon, rough areas, tough, uh, challenging estates. I mean, I really enjoyed it because, you know, when you go somewhere as a police officer detective, you, you want to be somewhere as busy where there's a variety of, you know, there's lots of, you know, quality victims. There's, there's good things going on. And, and I, I, re- I, I, really, I really enjoyed it. And I, it had funny, funny moments. I remember the, the uniform superintendent taking me up onto the roof of this Victorian police station. I'd been there about three or four months. And he said, son, come up here. And he says, look, look all around. He says, look around. He says, this is our manor. We own it. You know, it's like some living in some kind of <laughs> fantasy world, really. But this, that's is, a, a, uh, yeah. this is a uh, Guy Ritchie film. I, I mean, I, I, have a, I, have a, I, have a, I have ambitions to do some work in that area. If I can remember all my stories, I've done a draft screenplay and episodes. But anyway, but um, it, was, it was very, very moving in some ways and very interesting. And I, I, one of the most formative Formative, I think is a word. Experiences of my life happened there. With um, Brian, I was I was um, working on a, a sort of late shift, and the station officer called out and said, "I want a detective come down and speak to somebody at the front counter." I went down. There's a young black woman there, about 24, with a tiny, right. but tiny, tiny baby, really quite upset. And I took her to the side room and said, "What's up?" And she said, "My boyfriend is really violent, and he um, he beats me regularly." And he, I know he loves me, but you know, this is this is I've, I can't take it anymore. And I said, "Well, what's happened?" And she said, "I had this baby two days ago, difficult birth in hospital for sort of twenty four hours. Came back, and he insisted on having sex with me. And I said no, and he punched me in the stomach and, and basically raped me. And I've had enough. And I said, "Oh, that sounds awful. I'm really sorry." Right? Have you got any family? She said, "My dad's in Manchester, and he's going to come and get me tomorrow." I said, "Okay." Where's this guy now? She said, "No, he goes off, and he'll come back in the middle of the night probably and try and get me again." 
And I said, what's he done in the past? He said, well, the worst thing he did was, um, before I had my baby, the baby, he, um, he was sure I was having, having an affair with someone else. And he came back and he'd been high on crack. And um, he basically knocked me down and, and he had me lie on the, they lived in a maisonette, lie with my legs on the bottom step. And he jumped on my legs till he broke the tibia in both legs. And I said, how long ago is that? And she said, two years. And I said, what do you do then? She said, well, you know, he, next day I mean, I'd go in the hospital and he was so apologetic. And, you know, he was, and it's that kind of thing. You partly think, you're mad. You know, how, but then you kind of understand, you know, you're kind of caught in this relationship. So I said, okay, we've got we to look after you now between now and, you know, when your dad comes down from tomorrow. Have you got any friends you can go to? She said, no, he hasn't let me have any friends. So I sort of speak to my boss and he says, well, she's not staying here, mate. You've got to get her out of here. You've got to cry. So I said, okay, I'll go with you back to your flat, your maisonette, and I'll wait with you until your dad comes. And then I'll tell you'll be all right. And I went down to the collators of the intelligence. I quickly looked up the boyfriend. Yeah. Jesus, it's kind of frightening kind of creature. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so I went back to the DI and I said, you know, this is this bloke. And, um, you know, can I have some help? He said, no. He says, you'll shout. He says, either let her go or go with her. So, okay. Having said to her, I'll look after you. So I went back with her, had my wooden truncheon. I've got my radio that's got about 150 metre range. <laughs> and, and, and we sit in this, this maisonette. And I remember it really kind of, it wasn't a nice place. It's kind of cold, but it was one of those, it was a, in a, these long kind of communal corridors with doors either end. So whenever, mm. the, whenever somebody, the doors opened, the, the door would rattle. And I, yeah. I sat in one chair and she sat in the other. And I was frightened thinking this guy comes back it's going to be a, you know I'm unlikely to win this battle but I, it just gave me an insight to living with with that kind of fear from someone who you love or you think loves you yeah and it, and it kind of just I, I kind of I always remember that I was, I've used that in lots of different sort of scenarios about understanding what you've got to understand what it's like to be in that position I think as men we need to understand what it's like for a lot of women not, not necessarily in, in violent relationships but just their fear of what might be out there for them you know, that fear of walking along the dark path or getting into a taxi. We've got to understand that a bit better. Anyway, my dad came down and she went off safely. I didn't have to try and fight this monster, so it was all right. <laughs> so he didn't come back then? Not that night. No, we got him the next day. But um, um, not in... I had, I had a friend with me and we got him, we got him properly the next day. So um, When you say you got him properly, you, you mean you got him lawfully? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 cool. We cool. had a, we had a, we had a, we had a, we had an arrest that was um, righteous. I suppose is the word to say. <laughs> You're a knight in shining armor, Nick. No, not really. It's not. I've done things I'm not proud of, but it was, um, it was one of those moments when you just, you know, you 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 kind of rejoin. Having been in a kind of this kind of band of brothers, everyone would go out and go and get back to actually sit with a victim and and, and wait. For something yeah. to happen, potentially, it, it was just—it was quite. Um, it was—it it made a big impact on me. And so, was that was that a fairly common sort of thing? I know, obviously, you know, you don't go and go home with every victim. This was a spe- you know a special case, I guess you'd say. But how common is this? Well, it's changed. It's changed a lot because, you know, two or th- well, probably f- ten years later, um, the Met finally woke up to the the amount of domestic violence that's going on. More, more murders happen in a domestic situation than any other situation. So more women, right. are, more women are killed through domestic violence than are murdered 
through, you know, violent criminals attacking each other or street crime and so on. Um, so we started to think, how do we deal with this? And we set up specialist units to deal with it called community safety units. People especially trained to sort of deal with it. We sent up refuges. We worked with charities that would provide shelters, those kind of things. So it was a much better situation. So it wasn't your choices, hang around the police station and hope you're not in trouble or go home and wait for something to happen. So, um, so it's, it's a lot better now, and and, it, and that certainly has changed, and and for the good. But it's a really tricky area to work with because, you know, quite often, you know, you have victims who, you know, they've been in long term relationships, they've had children with these men, they kind of they're not optimists, but they hope that it may not happen again, or they trust, and you know, it is difficult, you know, in prosecution terms, investigation terms. If you don't have a cooperating victim, it's quite hard to get someone to court and get them convicted. So I guess it's this kind of thing of like being hot and cold, isn't it? So one day, you know, you love him the bits and they're the, the greatest thing on, on the planet. And next day, you know, he's breaking her legs and then he loves her again. Yeah. And then yeah. he hates her again. Then he loves her again. And then she's got no friends and she he's isolated her from her family, presumably. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And they don't know whether they're coming or going. And I guess after a period of time, they think that that is love and that is normal or that they're not, um, they're not, worthy of anything else because a lot of this will come with comments as well won't it of oh you know you're not good enough or you're this or you're that or who'd want you you're just this and that yeah wear them down dominate control yeah no it's horrible horrible yeah so uh, so after this uh where do you go okay i got i got i got promoted to detective sergeant and i went off to hounslow which is west london which is a great very different area very big asian population poor white working class all the airport and all the stuff going on around the airport. And I was there on promotion, youngest DS in the office, usual thing. So it was, I liked, I enjoyed it a lot. It was, um, I had a new young team with me. We were given stuff to do by the DCI because he saw the energy and enthusiasm we're doing. A successful time. Again, you know, found some really good people to work with. Um, And from there, I went up, I was selected to go up to the Central London Drug Squad, which was, again, another interesting time. Crack had just arrived in London. Um, lots of stuff happening in the city, lots of... Um, I mean, I, I got involved with an, through an informant with a kind of... I can't remember all their various names, but they were all kind of slightly entitled, sort of well-to-do people. I remember doing a, a drugs raid on premises in um, South Kensington where we bashed the door in and there was a lady so-and-so on the loo with a needle in her arm out of it, two or three other sort of trust fund types, people who had, you know, every start in life but had just got into drugs and just... Yeah. ended up ruining their lives really so tell me about the arrival of crack so i know in america the sort of pre- the prevailing um the prevailing um wind theory with <laughs> with with, <laughs> with crack was that it was sort of allowed by the government to ruin the the project and and the black population now, i know it sounds a bit conspiracy theory i think there is some truth in it i'm not saying that that happened here in in the uk but I, th- I think it, it just came over with that kind of West Indian diaspora in the kind of 80s and I think in 90s. And um, it, it just, I mean, I, I think its impact was the, what we thought would happen was kind of exaggerated. It didn't get quite as bad, but it certainly, it was just a different kind of way of drug taking. You'd have this whole thing where it, it was such an immediate high and then an immediate low and people just, the kind of craving for it straight away seemed to be more aggressive. So, they would basically take over people's flats and set up what they call crack dens. It brought in a right. lot a lot of concentrated crime into an area because people go there desperate. They go and do robberies and stabbings to get money anywhere locally. So it just became a bit of an issue. Um, 
And, you know, we spent quite a lot of time trying to tackle it, whereas it was probably the least sexy part of drug enforcement. You know, most of my guys wanted to go off to, you know, I don't know, Malaga and do a buy-bust operation over there for a couple of kilos of coke. And I said, no, we've got to spend three weeks on some scummy estate in West London doing observations, picking off junkies, proving they bought drugs from there, and then we're going you know, to kick the door and arrest people and then close off those premises. And that, yeah. that's not quite as much fun. <laughs> no, I, I, I imagine it isn't. Tell me about a drugs bust. Tell me about the training for a drugs bust. Tell me <laughs> about the feeling of... Um, you know, but you, you, I, I guess most of these are sort of 4am. So so you you rock up, you know it's happening like a day ahead of t- schedule or what, what's the... It's generally informant-led. So an informant who you've arrested a month ago for something, he says, right, I'll give you some info. He comes back and says, right, Fred Bloggs is in that, is in this address. He's got, I don't know, a few answers of this. He's got that. Best time to go in is early in the hour, early hours of the morning because they'll be sleeping it off. Who else, so you ask, who else is there? Have they got any weapons? Where's the drugs kept? Those kind of questions. Yeah. If, you know, if you've been in, what's the door like? Is there a back door? And so on and so on. So you get as much information as you can from people who are usually not really good at remembering those kind of details. You, in theory, do a risk assessment to say, you know, what should happen. You do checks on the occupants if they're known. Quite often mm-hmm. you get stuff like, say, he's a yardie <laughs> and, and he's, he's violent and he's either got a gun or a machete and he usually keeps his uh, gear under his mattress, and he's fierce. Tell the listener what a yardie is. Well, a yardie is a Jamaican criminal who comes from the yards in Jamaica, um, and basically are supposedly a feared, generally black criminal with involvement in um, serious crime like drugs and violence, and violence related to drug dealing. Um, right. so, so I would gather my team and say, right, this is where we're going tomorrow. We'd have people called door openers who were a little team of... Um, civilians who had equipment that would prise open a door quietly and then you say right you're number one you're number two you're number three through the door yeah we weren't armed we would if we were lucky we'd take some uh, pickaxe handles as sort of weapons just to try and protect ourselves and the idea would just generally go in as early morning the door would be popped open and we'd just run in shouting police don't worry right, shock and awe yeah um, and Usually it was fine because, you know, people were dazed and stuff like that. But it, it was, the adrenaline certainly ran. And, of course, I was, I was the DS running it. So you'd have a, a degree of responsibility. So I would usually feel I had to go in first and <laughs> hope that I ran into an empty room and somebody else got the foot, you know, that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> um, yeah. But that's leadership, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It is. And it was, yeah, it was... It was, it was, when you think about, if you roll it on to how it's done now and how it would have been done in the last sort of 10 years of my service, very, very different. You know, you never would have gone in. If you had, inf- if you had information from a reliable, a reliable informant that there were weapons in the premises, you'd always have a firearms team going there. But we just wanted to be the ones who arrested them. There's something about you've got to lay hands on them if you're a proper detective. And if, how many of these raids did you do? Oh, God. I was on the drug squad for three years, so probably. Two a week. Two a week. They all go smoothly, or have you got any war stories? Um, I feel like you're holding back on some of these stories. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, I mean, some were catastrophically kind of wrong. You know, we'd run in, there'd be an no entirely, entirely innocent family in there, absolutely <laughs> horrified, horrified to meet me and my friends at that time of the morning. Um, With pickaxe handles. Yeah, there were, there were, you know, times, there was one time... Um, 
in some flats in, in Victoria where we decided to use subterfuge. So we got our female officer to go there with a bunch of flowers and bang on the door and say, I got some flowers to deliver. And when the guy opened the door, I was forced the door through and after, and he had a machete behind the, the door, which he tried to um, attack me with it. So we had this kind of, and he had a, a very unpleasant dog. So I'm trying, right. to, I'm trying to hold his arm with a machete I've got yeah. Jane, her name was with the flowers, who's trying to be helpful, but not really be helpful. And the dog is trying to bite the sort of backside out of my, my, <laughs> my, my jeans. And the, the state of the flat was such that no one else could get in. So it's yeah. kind of really silly kind of backwards and forwards. And I, you imagine the noise, the shouting by me, because I was frightened and I was trying to persuade this man he shouldn't bring the machete yeah. down and trying to force it back. So that was kind of messy, but it actually became a... A stated case in law because um, it was the first time he appealed it and and the, the decision was made in law that we police could use subterfuge to gain entry into premises it was a lawful method of doing it right now what is subterfuge it's uh it's trickery it's trickery right, right. you know so basically you pretend to gain access to the flat we pretended we were for the florist so rather than saying police open up in which course everything would go down the loo and be flushed Obviously, yeah. way. So that was a, that was in you know the kind of whatever it was the mid nineties, and that was a became a stated case, which was um, unusual. Yeah, it's just one of those things. So is that now looked down upon? Is as um, uh, is that still lawful? To it's, use it's, those? it's completely accepted. My, my case made it yeah. acceptable, if you know what I mean. They, they oh, I on the basis of that said, yeah, this is a reasonable way to, for police to act. Okay, and what do you say to someone after they've tried to kill you with a machete? Um, you're nicked. <laughs> You're nicked. <laughs> Quite literally nicked. Yeah, you're now. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, shove them to the ground, get their hands behind their back, cuff them. Yeah. Probably punch them. Punch them yeah, a couple how, of times. Well, I was going to say, yeah, how do you... Because the adrenaline must be absolutely... It must just, just be running the show at that point, mustn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is It is quite hard to actually back down from that, you know, and, and you know, I've... I've Fortunately, um, not too often found myself going overboard, but I have pulled back colleagues and said, enough, come back, enough, enough, pull them off, you know. And I remember being on a, on a big housing estate in North London. Uh, I was looking for somebody who was doing daytime burglaries and, and I saw this guy come out of a block of flats and he had a bag with him. And I just knew, yeah. I, he looked at me and I, and I just knew he'd, he'd just committed a burglary. So he takes off and I started running and my partner put a call out on the radio. So I'm running across this long sort of concrete sort of, set of buildings housing estate with grass in between chasing him and i can hear in the distance a police car coming sirens and the sort of screeching of the brakes and the car overtakes me and they they pull to stop and they and as my guy runs alongside and they jump out just as i arrive so i grab him throw him to the ground these two uniform cops get out and run over and they start punching and kicking this guy so I, <laughs> So I end up punching and kicking back at them and saying, he's arrested, he's mine, he's fine. But he's, they, they say, oh, we've driven all the way. And you can see the kind of, again, it's that adrenaline rush. They wanted to go, they wanted to go and vent. And I say, no, st- stop. He's <laughs> not your prisoner, he's mine. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it must be difficult. It must be difficult. And that is the, that's the conversation with some of the stuff in the States, isn't it, last year, yeah. is that... Is that you know their training is just not um, it's not good enough, and they're put in situations with fire you know fo- when you add firearms to the mix as a you yeah, know yeah. a normality, you yeah. know there are going to be times where and I'm not saying that I'm defending anyone who's um, 
committed acts of uh, brutality. But I don't know. I guess when the adrenaline's taken over, mistakes get made, don't they? Especially if you yeah. feel like it is life or death. Yeah, I mean, I I, I find the American um, approach to policing kind of difficult. I've worked with Americans. I've managed and run American cops in when I worked in the Balkans, and. You know, this ridiculous approach to firearms. I mean, they, you know, we, we worked in a, you know, post-conflict environment. We all had guns, but the only people who wore them all the time were the Americans. We would just put them on when we went to work, put them on when we yeah. were going to do an operation. They wore them all the time. You know, go, go, go for a McDonald's and they wear their guns. I said, what's the matter with you? What do you think is going to happen? You know, it's kind of, so it's just too many guns. You know, there are more cops in America killed by people taking their guns off and shooting them so that is a kind of weird, just too many guns, madness. Yeah, it's almost got to the point of no return now, isn't mm, it? Yeah. I don't know how you... It's a whole different podcast, how you yeah. fix that. But okay, so you've so you've done your drug drug squad for three years. You had your, your fun kicking indoors and, um, you know, waking up innocent families at four in the morning. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> what's next? Do you go? I've got to get out of here. I get the call. I've been wait. I get the call. I've been waiting for for the last thirteen years, which is go and take the DCI at Barnes Flying Squad out for lunch. Oh, so my mate had already got to the Flying Squad. My my really fantastic friend. He's already a detective sergeant on there, and the DCI, the detective chief inspector, who runs the Flying Squad office for the, that quarter of London. Um, and who decides who comes to work there, um, wanted me to buy him lunch in Barnes. <laughs> so, and he turned out, he was the same DCI who I knew from when I went to Harrow Road, who would come out at 11.30 in the morning and say, right, you, we're going on the manor, we're going drinking. So I knew what he was like, so I got one of my guys to drop me off there, and we had a long lunch. He drank an awful lot, ran up a big bar bill, and said, right, you're coming over next Monday, whatever it was. And how does this stuff work? You don't, you don't, you just go, he rings your boss and he goes, cool. Or what's the paper? Not that I want to talk about paperwork, but what's the, what's the process like? Gen- generally, there's a, there's usually a selection process that, you know, there was. And right. I, I think countless interview, interviews for different jobs or sat on interview boards, kind of, kind of a whole funny set of stories of themselves. But with that, it was kind of a question of if you were, if, if, if the DCI from the fire squad phoned up and said to your boss on a drug squad, I want him, then they say, okay, fine, you go. It's, it's, it's just accepted in that world at that time that right. you know, no one's going to say no. So um, so I went, so I joined them. So there's there's no amount of, of your boss, I guess, at this case, now your former boss, saying, hey, hey, this is one of our best guys, you know, I don't want you to take him. Uh, in this case, no, um, partly because he and I never got on. <laughs> ah, My boss on the drugs right. and I never, we, had, we, just, we just, it was one of those... You know, it's, it just, it's when it first came home to me how important, the most important thing about work is who you work with. Yeah. And he's got, I mean, he's dead now, poor chap. I mean, he died quite a long time ago, but he was a, he was an, a, a murder squad investigator. So he was a cop used to investigating crimes that already happened. Whereas my, my whole career had been around trying to find crime being or about to be committing and dealing with it. So proactive policing. Uh-huh. And, and he and I just didn't get on. You know, there's a kind of, he lacked any credibility. He was only put on the drug squad because the guy before him uh, stole a kilo of cocaine from the old Bailey and got suspended. <laughs> <laughs> so they thought wow. we, want, we want somebody who's never done a bad thing in their lives and, and also never investigated a bloody crime to come and run it. So, so we didn't get on. It's that thing, isn't it? You know, it's um, what's that expression? Um, 
be the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. maybe. But anyway, so, so that was my start, 19, 1997, flying squad at Barnes. Um, and I thought this was, this was it. This was, I'd arrived. I was, you know, part of that select group. Um, and in many ways it was good, but in some ways it was disappointing. It was um, so competitive. You, you know, you, I thought I got there and that was it. We, yeah, you made it, but... Yeah, you were in. I, I mean, the thing about the flying squad, it's it's remit is to investigate all armed robberies on banks, building societies, betting shops, jewelers, and cash in transit. So quite a special. And and, and the thing was, you know, you'd investigate those that had happened, but the big thing was to find a group of blaggers and robbers, target them, follow them, watch them commit an armed robbery, and then arrest them. And that right, was that all was, the glory, and that was the absolute buzz. That was, and, bec- right. and because it was a self we had our own surveillance teams, we had our own um, firearms capacity, our own intelligence unit, and our own specialist drivers. So I had my driver, my forensic scene examiner for when I was on the bank car, as it's called, and then my surveillance team. So I, would, if I had a good informant, you say, right, these people are going to rob that bank or that cash in transit vehicle, and we get on them. Um, yeah. you know, it wouldn't happen now because, of course, you know, the primary function of an efficient police, as I learned all those years ago, is to prevent crime. But, but we knew, because we were the squad, but we also knew that it's much, strong, <laughs> much stronger evidence at court if you've actually seen them do it rather than say that they've <laughs> done it. Right. So, unfortunately, we, we had a lot of robberies that we watched being committed, a lot of traumatised bank tellers and security guards who afterwards looked a bit bewildered when suddenly out of cars and vans all these burly guys with pickaxe handles and firearms jumped on and run. said, well, we didn't know this was happening. Oh, sorry, mate, but it did. So so that, that was it. And it was, my wife would describe it as, you know, your time with boys with toys because we were, you know, amazingly well-resourced and kind of in many ways accountable to no one but ourselves. Wow. Were you guys like the SAS of the men? <laughs> Well, the Met did have a, a firearms team, but as I said before, we were we were proud. We never used them. It would be a sign. Right, it would be a, it'd be a sign of how feeble we were if we had to call on the, the wooden tops. The oh, uniform. see, right. I thought that they. I thought that the firearms guys were part of your unit. Like they were just an art. Like one of your many uh, um, wooden assets. top wooden tops, Andy. We wouldn't touch them. They were just uniform officers. They weren't detectives, you know. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> There's a look of sheer joy on your face. Explain the wooden top uh, yeah, thing. I mean, it's, it's a re- it's a really, I mean, sort of anachronistic and old-fashioned thing. But yeah, there was a real thing. If, if you if you were a detective, you would work three or four times as hard as the uniform equivalents. You know, right. you, know I, you would sacrifice promotion to become a detective. So when you mm-hmm. got there, and and of course, you know, you consider yourselves, you know, especially when you got onto a squad, you know, you were the elite of the detectives. So. The uniform officers who just basically carried a uniform all their lives, occasionally gone on a course to learn how to operate a CS gas canister or, I don't know, <laughs> dri- drive a car faster or, you know, fire paintball or something like that. They were, they were nothing. So it was this kind of... I mean, I, I know there were funny times. I remember going into West End Central Police Station with a prisoner with the flying squad and we go in and my... My number two, so my DC, and he just kind of bars you. There's all these uniforms, and we come in, and we're obviously the squad with our ties and our sort of stuff. And he just says, uh, "All right, lads," he says, "Squads here, get the kettle on." <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> horrible, elitist kind of behaviour that you think, "Oh God, how do people behave like that?" But it, it was that thing. So, you know, when I was um, 
Like on, on the flight school, I remember, you know, we had jobs where really, if you looked at it coldly and analytically, you said, right, this is much better. We get the firearms specialists out. They'll deploy with their, you know, machine guns, their greater sort of firepower, and they will, they will deal with this, you know, in, in a way that they'll, they'll stop it happening. So no, 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 we'll hang around with our Model 10 Smith & Wesson six-shot revolvers that, frankly, would probably not work very effectively on anyone <laughs> further than 10 feet away from you. And we'll hide in cars and vans and houses and we'll let it happen. <laughs> then we'll jump out on these people with sawn-offs and stuff like that because we wanted the glory. We wanted the kind of status of having taken them down. So kind of um, entertaining and funny and, and daft and huge adrenaline highs and stuff like that. Um, and, and dangerous. Yeah, but that, but that was that was part of the fun, you know. We kind of, of had a... I, I had a case... Um, where there were four flying school officers, so London is split into four, and we right. were we were massively kind of in competition with the others, you know. And so if I had sus- if I had a team of armed robbers who operated in northeast London, I would never ever tell the northeast London flying school officer. I would deal with them from southwest London. We'd go over there, even if it added two, <laughs> two and we would deal with them over there. And so it's and we had a team that were operating in northwest London, which was the Finchley area, and Finchley officers had tried to arrest this team three times and failed. So I got information from foreman who said, this guy is going to, this, this group are going to go to work. They're going to steal a Range Rover from Shepherd's Bush tomorrow night. And they're, they're going to go and rob a cash and transit van. So I said, okay, do you know where the Range Rover is? And they said, yeah. So we got out there the night before and lumped up. So we put a, a tracking device underneath the, the Range Rover. Now, what, what does that look like in, what year is this? 19... Uh, 1997, 98. So what's the tracking device look like in 97, it's 98? About the size of a packet of fags. Right. So it's quite, that's quite big, really, isn't oh, yeah, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By today's yeah. standards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we got, and is it yeah. magnetic? Yeah, yeah, it's magnetic. Yeah. Range isn't <laughs> like brilliant. The... Range isn't brilliant <laughs> and so on. So, so we do that and, and right. you know, fantastically, they, this team come in and they steal it. So we're on them. So four guys, and one of them is the main guy we know, we call him Jeffrey, who has been the target of Finchley Fire Squad three previous operations have failed again and he's there and they go all around London for three days yeah. and they will go I mean they went into Epsom and there was a cash in transit and you know, like the big sort of marmot vehicles come in and they get out yeah. and they they're balaclavas and you see they've got hats on and they, they roll them down and when I'm saying right stand by stand by and then they decide not to they get back in the Range Rover and on the fourth day they went up to Kingsbury in northwest London and you know and I've got so I've got the gunships, as we call so myself controlling it with um, a firearms officer, my driver, and another firearms officer in the front, and two others, and the surveillance team were all armed, and we're kind of listening for sort of, you get the sort of feedback, you know, he's out of the vehicle, the guard's out, and then suddenly he said, right, they're on them, the robbery's happened. So we, we jump out, I jumped out of the, the, back, the back of my vehicle, um, and the driver starts driving as I'm getting out and runs over my left foot as I'm getting out with his... <laughs> big heavy Ford Granada so I stopped myself from shooting him out of spite and anger and run off through the sort of crowded Kingsbury road where imagine it's a sort of busy sort of weekday lots of people shouting and yelling and and they'd fired shots and the the cash in transit box with the money in it had a die in it die pack in it right so when they took it that explodes there's all sorts of chaos and I, to my shame, persuaded um, the surveillance team to bring a, a film, uh, a video guy out with yeah. us to film it for good evidence. I should have thought known better because this idiot came along to film it. And so I kind of run up to check how we're doing. And we've got uh, four prisoners and 
three of them are sort of trussed up where guys have got him, they've disarmed him and they've tucked And the main guy, Jeffrey, is lying on his side and he's only one arm is secured and he's blown about a bit. So I rush over, got my gun out and I say, is he controlling? He goes, no, we're not sure, we haven't, we haven't found a gun yet. So I just reach over and, and basically stamp on his, his hip to sort of flatten him so he's lying on his front and he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't quite move over. So I stamp again. At the same time, the, the video guy is filming this and he starts shouting, stop stamping on the prison. <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't really pay attention to until 12 months later at the Old Bailey. This is played as part of the evidence. <laughs> and I'm suddenly held up to be the demon who's tracked this innocent group of men around London and then jumped on them and beat them up in the, in the street. And they actually got off. They actually got found not guilty. Right. On the, on the technicality of you No, I mean, they, I mean, it was part... It was that, that kind of you know, clever sort of defence. They basically said they were under duress. They committed the robbery because they owed a huge drug debt to Mr Big... And if he said, if you don't commit um, this armed robbery and get the money, I'm going to kill you and your children. So they, so the jury believed it. It's just shocking. And they also believed that, you know, it had been a fit up by the flying squad. We were all corrupt. Kind of quite distressingly kind of, um, you know, a, a huge high. And I remember getting phone calls after he'd arrested him saying, oh, you've got him banged to rights. You've got him on the pavement. Oh, yeah, great. And then a year later, they'll walk out of the old Bailey and do a, an interview outside saying that the flying squad fitted them up and they never did it thing wrong it's shocking interesting interesting so i guess in that squad you're dealing with organized crime yeah of a much higher level so it's not it's not your it's not your addicts on the street who are doing petty crime to get by it's not well you've you have mentioned that you know you've got your sort of more entitled upper class rich kids kind of stuff that, that you know they're making mistakes and getting and getting busted as well but i guess mm. that that the, the flying squad goes above them even doesn't oh it? yeah i mean the, the, the rich kids was like it was a kind of the sort of trust uh, just in terms of investigation or you know, policing you 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 you'd arrest an informant you arrest somebody for drugs and he or she will give you his group the guy right. we, the guy we caught with some coke happened to have been a um, he went to school with Prince Charles, actually, this guy. So his group of friends, the people he was dealing drugs with, were all from yeah. that sort of background. The, the, people that on the, the people we dealt with on the uh, fine squad were generally armed robbers, and sometimes they were almost a generational thing. And in the kind of criminal world, a blagger, an armed robber, had a certain status. You right. know, they, they, were, they were the proper criminals. So, you know, when they get, get a prison, they get a bit of respect and stuff like that. So, so different, yeah, so they... They were good people to go after. There was, you know, there was a kind of no nonsense, you know, almost, you know, when you when you arrested them on the pavement, bang to rights, there was almost a recognition, like, okay, you got me, type of thing. It was, you know, part yeah. of the part of the deal, you know. Yeah, I'm quite a big fan of Dave Courtney. Um, <laughs> it's a strange, strange sentence to say. I mean, I I spoke to him not that long ago on the phone. Actually, I want to get him on. Uh, I want to get him on the podcast, mm. but of course, he wants paying, doesn't he? Mm. Um, <laughs> and he says, you know, or oh, doing the bird. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you know, only carry the weapon that you're willing to do the bird for. Um, blah blah blah. But he 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 had an interesting thing. He said, I don't know why going to prison is such a um, is such a respected thing in in these worlds because he says it means you got caught mm. and you weren't very good at what you do. He said you weren't a very good naughty boy if you ended up in prison. And he said when he went to prison, it's how he where he learnt how not to get caught. He just asked everyone how they got caught and they told him. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he, he was part of that point, a point in time. There was this kind of era when 
people like him and others, there was a sort of glamour around that kind of crime. Yeah. Uh, for another time, I could talk to you about him. Oh, okay. Off the record. <laughs> yeah. All is not as you think. I've been told by some people who uh, claim to be credible mm. uh, some things, but mm. I, I, I don't know. But yeah, an off the record Dave Courtney chat would be great because um, uh, I'm going to speak to him at some point in the future. We're going to do one of these. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we'll move, we'll move away from the um, the archetypal London gangsters that okay. are prob- okay. probably better in probably better in books than they are in yeah fictional in, stuff in, yeah <laughs> yeah in real life. So what else? What else did you learn with the Flying Squad, and what was next? Because I know that you've gone overseas and stuff. Uh, but is the Flying Squad the best part of your career? Is that no, the, the no, one not not really. No, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I've had, I've been really lucky, really varied. But it was an odd thing. My my time on the Flying Squad. It was a three to five year posting. My DCI on the Flying Squad had been replaced. The one who recruited me retired before he got nicked. And he was replaced by someone who um, we didn't see eye to eye at all. And so I knew my three years wasn't going to become a five-year posting. And the Friday before I was due to be told that, I got a phone call from somebody I'd worked with before who said, um, do you want to come for a beer? And I said, yeah, he's a lovely guy. He's for a beer. And he said, we've just set up a covert anti-corruption team. The commissioner admitted in the House of Parliament that he believed that there was a significant number of Met Police detectives who were really seriously corrupt and he was going to set up and had formed this specialist covert team to take them on. This guy who I worked with before said, will you come and work with them? Because there's a thing about cops, you don't really want to be investigating your own. Yeah. But I thought, but equally I thought, well, what else am I going to do? And he, I really liked him, this guy, Tim, a really, really lovely guy. And I said, well, okay. He said, okay, eight o'clock, Monday morning, Tim Tadgell House, the police building next to uh, the MI6 building. I said, okay. So I turned up there and um, had a kind of then a confidential briefing with the head of the unit. And he said, right, tomorrow morning, 5 a.m., um, I want you to be taking a team over to rig approach flying squad offices where we're going to be arresting five of the detectives on the flying squad. Uh-oh. So I said, ah, Jesus. He said, I know you just come from the squad. He says, but that's the game. Right. I said, right, well, give us a briefing, let's find out. And... Um, so we, we ended up going. So my second day on the anti-corruption squad, I had to go and arrest people who I'd been on operations with, they'd been working with. Frankly, some quite sad individuals. They, what they've been doing is they've been going to... Um, so a cash and transit robbery. So some robbers come and rob a vehicle that's got money on yeah. it. The robbers, yeah. robbers take all the notes. You know, the guards, if they're not with shock, call 999. Uniform turn up. It's a flying squad operation. They call the flying squad. The flying squad turn up and say, all right, Woody's clear off. We've got the scene. So they deal with it. This lot yeah. were then bringing up their private cars and loading what was left into their private cars yeah. and, and stealing it. What I mean, the, right. the point was, it was just the coin that was left. And on one occasion, <laughs> the car broke down because they had too much weight in the boot. <laughs> so they had, to get it towed, they had to get it towed into the flying squad office. <laughs> I mean, this, this only came out when we were doing the investigation. I went and arrested this guy. He'd been part of that team. And he was sad. I mean, his wife had kicked him out because he was a drunk and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. he was living in this really shabby flat. And a um, bit of respect for your sort of colleagues. You don't kick the door and knocked on the door and go in. And yeah. he, said, he said, oh, I know who you are. And I said, yeah. He said, I thought you were one of us. And I said, well, I am one of us, mate. But, you know, you've been nicked for robberies or certainly thefts. And I said... Uh, if you've got anything here, you shouldn't have. And he said, 
where you're going to find it anyway. So he had a little bedside cabinet, like a little drawer, three drawers thing, and I opened the top drawer, and the bottom fell out. It was just full of 10 pieces. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, talk about pathetic kind of, you right. know, just... Um, so that was a kind of introduction to sort of doing that. So, and I think, in a way, it was almost a bit of a test for me on there. They were right. saying, well, well, you know, you, you're coming on, you, we're going to send you out to arrest some of the people you've been working with. So, I mean, they, they were kind of quite sad. And then, and then we got into a kind of interesting, because it was one of those things, that, you know, policing where you had, because it was such a priority to get rid of bad cops, that you were given all the resources you'd need, so all the kind of additional stuff you'd normally struggle to get, like, you know, you know sort of the, the um, covert surveillance equipment you'd struggle to get and all that stuff we'd given. So it was kind of interesting, but sad time. I, sad to sit listening to intercepted telephone calls of detectives who you've known and worked and respect with organising, um, you know, a GBH or organising to bring in tonnes of marijuana from North Africa and stuff like that. I think, what happened? Yeah, what happened to you? Well, somebody who I'd, um, I'd met first at detective training school in 1987 became a good friend of mine. He went to one of the other four flying school officers the same time as I went to Barnes. And, and I had to go and arrest him 10 years later from when I first met him, but five years later from when we both joined flying schools. And um, I had to arrest him because he'd been um, part of a team that basically stealing money um, from uh, robbery, uh, crime scenes. And I, I said, Paul, what happened? You know, where, how did we get here? And he said, well, he says, you know, you know that first week when you join the squad and you're in there and you're looking around at all these people you've been selected to work with and it's your proudest moment? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, of course I know that. He said, the end of that first week on the Friday, the governor came around the office, we we're all there, done a good week. When he came and gave everyone an envelope, I got my envelope, 100 quid in it. Everyone else has an envelope and they all put it in their pockets, so I put it in my pocket. Um, what was happening? What was happening was they were skimming money out of robberies and sharing out. And and I have to say, had I been in this situation, would I have been brave enough to say, "Excuse me, where's this come from?" Or would I just have accepted it like he did? And of course, once you once you're corrupted, once you're in, then you're you're stuck. There's no turning back. Dirty then, aren't you? Yeah, forever really. If they can prove it. Oh, you went to prison. I mean, that's awful, really. Yeah. And is it and is it because the the flying squad is you know it, it, it's it's prestige and legend and and almost you know riding on the highs and successes of the guys before you, um, but not enough pay? Or is it just or is it just power? Power corrupts. It's just it's yeah. It just takes. I mean, it's not the pay. I mean, you were you know you you could earn every you could work you know fourteen hours a day if you wanted. You, you certainly. You had a, a comfortable existence, you know. And I know, right. I mean, nobody joins the police to for, to become rich, you know. You you can yeah. earn a you can earn a but it's not. But it was, it was just that that sudden flip. And, and with Paul, it was that that started. You know, he got that money, and then turned out that they'd one of the detectives on there had an informant who was a woman who was a really in her own right a really successful drug dealer, right. And she and this other detective became an item. And she started to supply really high quality information on drugs and, and robberies. And it started to be, they just, that whole squad just worked off her information. Right. And, and of course she started to manipulate it all. And they then, so they, they would say, right, this guy's got this amount of drugs, these firearms, committed these robberies. They'd go there and they'd find all this money, all these drugs, all that stuff there. And no one was going to say, oh, the police took that because as a criminal, if you get arrested with fifty thousand or hundred thousand, 
that gets added to your sentence in terms of <laughs> criminality. So they don't want you to find it. So they're not going to complain there was money there. So it was right. that, caught up. In it. So it's, it's a kind of murky world. And he was a lovely guy. You know, he just got caught up in it and, you know, ends up three years in prison. I guess every, you know, if, if every Friday someone's handing you an envelope and, mm. and all of your colleagues an envelope, that's office culture at that yeah, point, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And it, it's a yeah. brave, brave person who say no. I was just lucky. My office didn't do that. Not well, not in front right. of me. They didn't. <laughs> right. That's that's interesting. So, so you're on the corruption squad now. Mm-hmm. They've you think they've sent you out to arrest your own to see how committed to this you are, and maybe to see if you corrupted your own, yourself. A, a, a bit of a test. Can I? It's not the corruption squad. It's the anti-corruption squad. Okay. Oh, the anti-corruption squad. <laughs> <laughs> You go after the corruption <laughs> yeah, squad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to go and be corrupt together, guys. Yeah, that'd be a good squad. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so it was an interesting time, and it kind of tough, and also it made you realise quite quickly how it's really hard to convict cops because they can always, particularly in that area of sort of you know, specialist crime and covert policing, where a lot of the information we had against them was stuff that you couldn't use evidentially. Right. So they would. Or they would say, right, if you if you pursue me and, and go to um, prosecute me, I will tell the court and I will explain publicly all the, all the things I've been involved in. I'll give the details of all my informants. So you then have to work out, okay, if they do that, we've then got to, you know, rehouse, protect people who have been, you know, under threat of death. And kind of so quite often we ended up having really strong cases we thought against people as soon as we got, but doing them for things like driving their police car when they were off duty or claiming expenses they weren't entitled to. But but we sacked them, we got them out, type of thing. Right. That is interesting. And do you think a lot of these these cops that have gone a bit sour or... Uh, oh, I use the word cops. Is that some? Is that uh, um, to American? No, no, no. You? Cops cops is fine. Cops, cops is fine. Yeah. Um, so, the, like you said, that your one of your former bosses was a murder investigator uh, yeah. on the murder investigation. That's a grim job, isn't it? It's a dull job, Andy. It's a dull job. It's a dull part of policing. Do you think that will change people? Do you think a lot of these people that have been corrupt and have been you, you were going after they've they've seen things they've done had to you know witness things they've seen the darkness out there and do you think they've just sort of got lost in that and lost their way or, or is it no, purely no. opportunist? It, I mean, no, it's a. I mean, the I, I think you know the, the sort of the mur- you know I've been involved I've been involved in murder investigations and like that you know it, it's tragic it's sad. But it's not something that should change your behaviour or how you are. Um, right. Exposure to manipulative, serious, organised criminals on a regular basis who who have who are cunning, who are smart, street smart, who've got a completely different agenda to you and will see their opportunity to seize it. That, there's a bigger sort of challenge in that sense. Right. Um, and, and that's where the kind of corruption issues come from. I mean, you know, there's a sort of petty... You know, cop who goes to a crime scene and, you know, there's been a, I don't know, a, a burglary and they go into the burglary and there's a couple of, you know, there's something lying around, they pick it up and pocket it. But these were people who were, you know, actively involved in stealing, um, you know, large amounts of money um, or working in working in collaboration with criminals to steal from other criminals. And, you know, I mean, just right. completely against, you know, what you should do as, as a upholder of the law. And so, what? What? Where'd you go after that? I went after. Okay, no, I went after that. I was. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a. There's a, um, a murder of a, a young black guy called Stephen Lawrence in London in Eltham. 
which became notorious, um, became the subject of a judicial review, the McPherson Report, a hugely, hugely transformative thing. But basically, young black guy with his friend in Eltham in South East London in 1997, when five white men chase and stab him to death. And the police investigation is bungled. Right. You know, none of the suspects who are named quite soon are arrested straight away and so on. And it, be, it becomes a sort of cause celebre. As a result, um, the, the Met get into a kind of real mess and, and um, realise they've got to do something. And they formed a special team to go after the five suspects. And I was brought in by the head of that unit to run the covert policing teams to try and get evidence of their involvement in the murder. So again, one of those kind of quite nice in terms of I get taken out of one office where I've got all the tools to do a job that I want to another one where basically the commissioner said to the Met, right, Nick and his team, they will get whatever they need to do this job. So I could go into right. our technical support unit who would normally say, well, that special bit of kit on the tip shelf, you can only have that for a special job and yours isn't special enough. I'd just go in and say... I want the whole of your top shelf and I want it now in the back of my car, please, because yeah. the commissioner said so. So we went after these five guys um, and spent two years doing all sorts of things, bugging cars, bedrooms, rocks, hotel rooms. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny in a way, but to try and get evidence, you know, the sort of the kind of practice was to, you had your suspect who you wanted to talk about what they'd done in the past so what you wanted to try and do was to get them out of where they would live, get a listening device into the premises, let them back into the dress, not knowing you'd been in there, and then trigger some kind of reaction that would cause them to talk about what they'd done. Right. So we had lots of sort of crazy things. I remember one in South London when um, we had this family who um, we had information had been the people who one of the murder suspects had come to after the murder and given them some clothing to get rid of and they lived in this flat um, in Black Fen near Sidcup and uh, so you do some surveillance on them and you realize they never leave this flat they're this family who have the most unhealthy lifestyle everything is delivered to the house that they eat this is like way beyond Covid you know this is way before Covid <laughs> they just don't do anything active they don't work they don't the kids don't go to school they don't do anything apart from sit and see to watch TV so how are we going to get them out of the house? And we, I mean, we got the local steakhouse to send them, hey, you've won a free night for five, for, you know, full all expenses paid steak dinner. Come, <laughs> we, we kind of paid them to do, this is dropped in, and they phone up the steak place and say, well, you send it round, and we ain't bloody bothering sort of thing. They wouldn't get out. <laughs> we, th we thought we'd get a TV into them that had a, um, a, a camera in it facing out and a recording device. Again, so, hey, you've won this new TV, do you want it? Now it's not the right TV for us. It's kind of endless, <laughs> kind of comical things to try and get them to happen. So spent quite a bit of time working um, in that area. Um, and it, eventually, sadly, after two years, we, we basically run out of things we could do to get any evidence. Right. Um, and so I basically decided, okay, we'll quietly shelve that, really. And so I had this team of personally, a personally selected, highly skilled, experienced detectives working to me, all this specialist equipment, and nothing to actually, no specific area to focus on. Right. So I remembered back to my days of, of my um, victim with a little baby and the broken legs, and I thought, okay, what's not happened in London is there's not been this kind of resource deployed against repeat domestic violence offenders. So we did some work and we identified, because quite, quite often 
people, men generally, who are repeat domestic violence offenders are also involved in other crime. So I said, right. to, so I said to my analysts, okay, find me the top three baddest men in London who have beaten women and are involved in other crime. And we'll go after them. And they found me a guy, I don't remember his name now, but South London drug dealer who had put two women into hospital. Um, one of them was in a mental institution, so traumatised by her experience. The other one he'd beaten so badly and she'd gone back up to Manchester where she lived and was back with her family. These were educated women he'd gone after. And he's a really good-looking, handsome, kind of educated, smart dude, but he's a horrible, horrible bugger. And, and he had this third woman he was living with in, in Peckham. Um, and I said, right, we'll, we'll go after him for everything he's got. We know he's into drugs and firearms. And we, you know, we had his Porsche tracked and, and um, fitted with uh, recording devices. And we had his house fitted with recording devices. We had his phones intercepted. And we spent three months on him. We got him with a kilo of coke and a firearm. And he went to prison for nine years. Didn't have to bother his current girlfriend who he's beating or anyone else. But one of the things really moving at that time, because, you know, we had his house fitted with um, microphones, um, was listening to him talking to her in the house. And it made your blood run cold listening to the way he spoke to the woman who he professed to love. It did, yeah. we, I remember sitting in it. We had a kind of listening booth in our, in our offices where you sit and listen to stuff. And we kind of put headphones on, you listen, and you kind of look at each other and you think, yeah, it was horrible, horrible. Right. Listen, horrible, the way... That man spoke, and I, and I used those recordings. I, did, I, did, I got involved in doing a couple of conferences speaking about domestic violence, and I played those in a couple of conferences and saying, you know, I'm not going to tell you who this was and so on, but just listen to what people will be facing on a daily basis. This is someone who loves the man she lives with, and he supposedly loves her, and this is how he speaks to her at breakfast or at supper or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And how do you uh, how do you sit there and listen to that with your colleagues? And, and uh, you know, you know that at that moment you can't just go and bust the door down with your pickaxe handle and uh, no. you know and put, make it right. You have to sit and yeah, bide yeah. your time yeah. and wait. And and how do you not take that home with you? I mean, I sometimes you don't, and it, it kind of you know, at times it's reminding me of the kind of the David Attenborough programs when you watch you know, like a little baby seal emerge and it's kind of waddling down to the ocean and you know there's a killer shark waiting and you think you want to jump yeah. in and pick it up, but you can't. And yeah. of course, there's, you know, there's nothing we could do because he hadn't done anything to her at that time. But but when we got him, we got him. You know, it's that kind of thing that, you know, it was it was a a righteous arrest, as I said before. You know, it was yeah. kind of... It wasn't just the, it wasn't just the firearm and the kilo of coke you're being arrested for. It was, yeah. I spoke to a guy recently who's written books on the FBI and the CIA and things like that, and we talked a little bit about how they do their bugging operations in, in bits and pieces, and some of the the more James Bond sort of, oh, maybe not even James Bond, but the you know the more um, uh, glamorous sort of fun, uh, you know, things of you know sneaking in people's buildings and trying to find ways to to catch them out. Tell me how you would do a, a general bugging uh, of a building and what sort of different sort of devices and things were available to you. Um, and what year is this? What year are we in right right now? We're uh, in... we're talking about the early two thousands. So a little bit more sophistication on the whole. Yeah, but not a lot. Front. Not not a, not a lot. But yeah, I mean, basically, you you have your target premises. Yeah. So say it's a semi-detached house on a South London housing estate. 
um, with three or four occupants. So you, you start off by putting surveillance on the occupants. So you get an observation point. So you've got the vehicle, they've got the premises in sight. You identify their vehicles if they've got them. And you, you spend two, three, four weeks working out their movements and trying to identify when they're out. If you can, you'll get the helicopter up to do an overview so you can get a kind of vision of sort of 360. Again, you know, this is before Google Earth was effective. You can do the same kind of looks. So you, you just get a really complete picture of how the occupants behave. You try and get a close-up when they leave the house. How do they lock it? How is it, you know, do they double lock these each other and so on? And then you pick your time when you know they're away. If you can, you control them when they're away. You know, if there's four occupants, it's quite tricky because that's four surveillance teams to sort of go with them and just make sure you've got them controlled. Um, and you certainly spend, if you, before you go in, you'll have 48 hours non-stop surveillance, usually physical rather than camera or physical and camera, to make sure they haven't invited somebody over you don't know is going to be staying over. And then once the, when the house is clear, you'll send in your your door openers and your technicians. They'll video it as they go in. So make sure that when they move stuff to put in devices, they're not going to be you know, leaving it. Distracted. I mean, most of the time people don't know because they're not that meticulous. But if, yeah. you go, but if you're going after really good people, they will be thinking they may be um, susceptible, they may be targets, so they may be laid traps for you, so you're looking for that. But, you know, it's you know an evolving thing. And, of course, now you've got all sorts of home devices that people will have where they'll set up their, their own home CCTV system, so it can be completely stuffed before you start off. In those days, that, that system, those systems certainly weren't widely available. So it was, it was better. Though we we had you know times when we've had our people in there and they've been in the sitting room putting in devices, and they'll hear the loo flushing upstairs, and there's this kind of whispered on the radio. <laughs> premises. What do you want us to do? You know, oh, Christ, yeah, what do you do? Get out is the answer. You know, can't stay in. That's amazing. That is so amazing. And and have you had times where you've been rumbled? Yeah. They've gone, you know, they've got halfway down the street and they've gone, ah, oh, yeah, I haven't back. got my wallet. Yeah, yeah. And they come back in and they go, who the fuck are you? Yeah, no, we've had, I've, I've, had, I've had people in there and they've had to pretend they were burglaring it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, mate. Yeah, I didn't know. Uh, uh, oh, shit. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do they, what? So these are like nasty criminals. And they have to then, you have to then be the guy that's pretending oh, to burgle him. Oh, well, this, oh, on this case, the, 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 nasty, the, the person coming back was the, the wife of the nasty criminal. Okay. So she, she was supposed to be working all day and she suddenly came back up and started coming back up. My guys are in there and I said, right, grab a video, get the video, the old video recorder and come out of the house because there was no way right. they, were, they couldn't get out of time. So they came yeah. out, she shouted them, they shouted and they just ran off and that was it. She didn't, re- she didn't report the burglary to the police, interestingly. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, well, the criminals don't uh, tend to call the police, do they? So we got away with that. We got away and they, they had left, um, they, they got some stuff deployed. So we did hear her go inside and then phone up her boyfriend and say, fuck, blah, 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 but just didn't think it was the old bill, which was good. That's amazing. Um, what do you do if you turn around and you realise that, you know, your mate's trailed mud all through the house or someone's knocked the vase over or something like that? You have any moments like that where you're like, oh, my God. I mean, if, if, if one of your team make that kind of basic cock-up, they buy breakfast for the team for the next week, it's a kind of, it's a fine, it's a serious fine. You can know? <laughs> swear jar. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay, so you've you, you've done, so what? where are we now? And what, okay, so we're in 2003. 
2003, 2004. 2004, I get a phone call from somebody I work with on the anti-corruption squad who said, I've just been promoted to deputy um, chief constable of Surrey Police. Do you fancy coming down? Do you fancy a promotion and coming down here? And I said, well, interestingly, I've just moved my family to Surrey. And that promotion was promotion of superintendent, which is quite a um, significant jump up in rank. Right. How many ranks is this? Well, no, it's one rank, but it was. It is the one where you um, the, things the, change. The, the money is is significantly different. Okay. <laughs> so I thought, okay. well, okay. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll sit the selection process. I'm sure it's going to be a you know a competitive process, which it was actually. Anyway, got the job, and I turned up there on the Monday, and he said to me, right, I want you to run my specialist um, crime teams, and I said rather petulantly. I really don't want to do that because I've been doing that for the last 15 years. Yeah. And he said, oh, really? He says, I selected you because you've done all that, but you don't want to do it. And I said, well, yeah. And so he said, well, come see me tomorrow. And I went back the next day and he said, right, you know that job you turned down? I said, yeah. He said, right, you're now head of customer service for Surrey Police. <laughs> and I said, oh, right, thank you. This feels like a punishment. And he said, well, yeah, it might do. He says, but take it from me, it's not because I've actually... We've been set targets by the Home Office, the level of public satisfaction with the police force in their area. So I thought, oh, crikey, that's something for me to think about. So he said, go have a week off, go and think about it, come back with a plan. So I went back and um, did some reading. And, and basically, cut long story, if you think about policing, police, police have the monopoly on that service. Yeah. No one else, you know, if you, if you get house gets broken into, you can't phone anyone else apart from the police if you're going to phone anyone. And... So I thought, okay, what are people's impression then of, of us as a service? So I did a bit of work and a bit of reading about it. And there's this expression in customer service called delighting the customer. You'll know this, Andy, from the co-op, right? Delighting the right. customer. <laughs> so, I got, so I got 120 response cops into a big hall in Dorking. They didn't know right. who I was because I'd been in the force for a, month, for a week. And I said, hi, you know, I'm Nick Dove. I'm your I'm new technical superintendent. I'm in charge of uh, customer service. Can you... Tell me or think how, when you go out and work every day, how you delight the customer. <laughs> and I could, <laughs> I, I could see the hand gestures from the back of the hall towards you, this bloody idiot, not complimentary hand gestures. But when you got into it and you kind of worked out, you know, the things that matter to people when they've been victims of crime are um, what actions have police taken? What did you do when I had some brain to? And will you keep me informed of what's happening? And when you looked at our systems and processes, they were so, you know, cops would go so far out of their way. Not, not to tell someone, that's the end of it, we ain't going to solve it. They just forever just not respond. So I kind of spent quite an interesting time working in that area. Um, I trained, I decided I was a bit bored with not being involved with people, like as a cop, because I was now quite senior. So I trained as a hostage negotiator at the same time, which gave me an oh, insight. Oh, yeah, as you do. Well, it was one of those things you... <laughs> you it's one of those... Those things you you do as as a cop in your own time basically is an odd thing, but you, it's something you you become on call, and it's just you're you're on you know your phone goes and there's something bad happening, go deal with it. You drop everything you're doing. Now, uh, a weird question: if you've got if you've got a hostage negotiation, um, what some sort of qualification or whatever it is, um, and you're not you say you're you know you use it once in a blue moon, does your pay go up because you've got that? You only get paid when you do it. Don't get paid at all for doing it. Oh, it's, it's no, it's no, there's no, there's no 
adva- no financial advantage at all to being a hostage negotiator. Well, aren't you a saint? Because because if that goes wrong, <laughs> yeah. If that goes wrong, I know whether you're getting paid or not, it's still horrible if it goes wrong. But to 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 volunteer to do something that could stay with you forever, should it not go the right way, is quite something, isn't it? Yeah, but think about. I mean, you don't go to think it's going to go wrong. You go think oh, I'm going to save someone, get somebody back. Well, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. And and it it, it is. Um, fantastic. I mean, the adrenaline high and the rush and the kind of the focus, the zone you get into when you're negotiating with somebody, is so extreme and it's it's, it's hugely rewarding and, and interesting. And I mean, I, I loved it. I, I kind of I, I put myself on call way too often. Frankly, my wife got really fed up with me. <laughs> so tell me about the basics of hostage negotiation. The ba- the basics is active listening. Right. The, the most important thing about a hostage negotiator is that you, your job is to gather intelligence to allow, yeah. to allow the operational cops to, to rescue someone. So really all you're doing is, is forming a bond with the hostage taker and developing a kind of relationship so they will tell you things that they might not want to tell you about. And they get to a point where you are, you are, you won't necessarily get their trust, but you'll get to a point where you will find out enough, you'll draw enough out of them to give your tactical team options into how they're going to deal with it. And sometimes right. you just talk them out, or sometimes you'll get them to the front of the building, we'll go in the back, or you'll get them to release some of the, you know, those kind of things. So it, it, the most important thing is, can you, can you, when you talk to them, are you listening? Are you getting stuff out? And, and, and the training, you start with, mm. you sit back to back. I would sit with my back against yours and you would talk about something and I would just listen and I would try and just find out. It sounds really basic, but you just, it's fascinating. I mean, I love I loved that world and I really enjoyed it and it was um, it How was much fun. of that is psychology? And, and a, a, having, lot, a lot, a lot, yeah. a lot, yeah. And, and, and having, a, having an intuition with people as well and having yeah. a, being able to, like having an emotional intelligence to understand because they want you, I guess at the end of the day, the, the, uh, if you're really effective, is they end up thinking that you actually, um, you're on their side a little bit, I guess, or, or that you're, hey man, this this dude gets it. Yeah, I mean, it, depend, it depends on the circumstances. I mean, I guess about, about 80% of negotiation is actually with suicidal people. 20% is with hostage takers. So, it's, yeah, so, so it's a kind of funny mix. I mean, uh, you know, I... The one that, that um, stands out in my mind as being different was um, somebody I know <laughs> got kidnapped. Uh, and basically, we were living in Surrey, but I was working in London. And my wife got a phone call at sort of seven in the morning from Ghana to say, Hi, 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 you know, um, how, how are you? She finally said, um, I'm just in a bit of bother. Um, do you think you can send me some money? And she said, What? So well, yeah, a bit, a bit of bother, you know. And she could hear some male voices in the background. She said, "What's right. going? What's going on? What's going on?" He said, "And then the phone got taken off him, and this guy comes on and said, hey, hi, you know, we need you to send us some money. Otherwise, bad things will happen.' And then something bad happened because she could hear the noise of him being hurt. He said, basically, um, don't phone, don't contact the police, and um, I'm going to phone you in an hour with whatever I want or whatever it was." She phones right. me. I'm in my office in London. But I nipped downstairs where um, we had the, the hostage negotiation suite, which is basically a you know, kind of big room with screens, 
call in the kind of analysts and researchers you need, the sort of field officers. And it just so happened a really good friend of mine, a great friend of mine, um, was running, was on call for that suite. And I said, John, this has happened. And he said, right, um, what we need to do is we need to, basically police forces have their kind of regions they're responsible for. At the moment, the crime has happened in Surrey because that's where the call was received. We'll send a car and a driver down and pick her up and bring her to London. So the crime scene is in London. We'll transfer, we'll just move your phone so it rings in London. So I said, okay, fine. And um, he said, how do, you feel, how do you feel about being the number one on the call? As a negotiation, you have number one, number two, you work together in pairs on negotiation. And I said, yeah, okay, fine, let's do it. And then we had then a 48-hour period when I was fielding the calls and, and trying to negotiate for his release. Um, and it was, it was odd because you, you, really, you really get, if you imagine you're in a small room and you're, you're face-to-face with your number two who's listening to what you're saying on headphones and you've got these people, horrible people, speaking to you and you're trying to kind of get something. To, and so I was immediately trying to portray myself, poor civil servant, didn't have much money, no. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a very angry, shouty man on the other end, men as it mm. turned out. Um, and at one point, it just felt right when he was getting really angry to hang up on him. Right. Just a shout, shout, shout. And I just unplugged the phone. And my number two just looked to me and he said, Jesus, what have you done? Because <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm going to cut his throat. I'm going to cut his throat. I'm going to do this. And I just cut him off. <laughs> so when you did that, was there a moment of like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, I it, did that, oh it, shit? It, it just, it, to me, it felt right. But my number two said, okay. don't worry if it goes wrong. He says, I'll burn the tapes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they came back on, changed the SIM card, came back on. And we eventually, um, after some, some conversations, of some silliness running around to Western Union on Paddington Station and sending money through that system. We got him back. But that was, that was different because that had the kind of emotional time. So you paid them in the end, did you? Yeah, we paid him and he paid us back. One of, one of, the, good things, <laughs> one of the good things was that, you know, part of our intel sale was we got into all his bank accounts and checked he got the money before we paid the money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. How and much it, did you pay? It was, I think it was 20,000, but it turned out that it was, it was a low. It was, what it was, it was Ghanaian police officers right. who were doing this as a side thing. They'd pick, off, they'd pick off, they'd pick off white sex tourists. Oh. Yeah. And, um, oh. <laughs> and yeah, so there you go. So, yeah. So Nick Dove does negotiate with terrorists. Big, big thank you to my guest this week, Nick Dove, for spending the time with us to uh, tell us all those great stories. As Nick isn't plugging a book or selling an album or anything like that, we are going to leave some links to further reading, I guess, further reading and viewing material on the Metropolitan Police, the Flying Squad, and other things that Nick has mentioned, if we find anything that uh, we think you guys would enjoy as a sort of follow-up research then we will put those in the show notes descriptions for you please like subscribe and leave us a review on apple Podcasts. that would be really really great um if you've got one friend you think would really really enjoy this then please by all means send that to them it's free of charge and it helps us grow and helps support this uh, this podcast this show uh if you want to check us out on social media you can the handle for instagram and twitter is at the giant pod my instagram is andy underscore s1s come say hello This podcast was produced by Detective Inspector Harry Williams, (laughs) and we will see you next week on The Giant Pod. Thanks very much.